Welcome to Yo! Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is writer Putsata Rang. She is a veteran journalist whose writings have appeared in national and international publications, including the New York Times, Politico, The Guardian, Ms., The Seattle Times, and the San Jose Mercury News. Rang was born in Cambodia and raised in Corvallis, Oregon. She earned a bachelor's degree in journalism and English at the University of Oregon. Her memoir, Ma and Me, was published in 2022. She teaches memoir writing at the University of Washington School of Professional and Continuing Education. Riang visited the UO School of Journalism and Communication from February 20th to 22nd to share her experiences with students in nine different journalism classes. Thanks so much, Putsada, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So you were born in Cambodia and raised in Corvallis. Let's talk a bit about that journey. First, remind us of the situation in Cambodia in 1975 that prompted your family to flee. It was a situation that is happening around the world over. My family was forced to leave because of war, specifically on April 17, 1975. And subsequently, for the purposes of writing this book, when I interviewed my mom about that time, she told me about our lives before we left Cambodia. I was a baby then, so I have no memory, but she said, we had this beautiful life on the coast of Cambodia. No lack of food or shelter or anything like that. We had all of our needs met. And she said if, if there hadn't been war, she would have had no, our family would have had no reason to ever leave. Um, but such as it was in April 1975, after five years of my country convulsing under civil war, the communist Khmer regime were finally able to uh, succeed in capturing the capital and immediately plunged Cambodia into a genocide that eventually claimed nearly two million lives. Including members of your family. And a lot of relatives of mine were among those two million, absolutely. And why was your family able to leave? I really count my family as among the lucky ones. In 1975, my father worked as an accountant in the Cambodian Navy. And on the day that word filtered to our family that the Khmer Rouge had captured the capital, there was a decision made in haste. And that decision was stay or leave. And for my family, especially my father, working under the US-backed Lenol regime at the time in Cambodia, the only option was to flee because had we stayed, we would have faced certain death because of my father's affiliation with the Cambodian government vis-a-vis -vis the military. And so we got lucky. There were three Cambodian Navy vessels that left the coast of Cambodia on April 17, 1975. Because of my father's connection working as an accountant in the Navy, my family was able to get on one of those boats that left. Now, but just to give you some perspective, these naval vessels were built for crews of roughly 30 men. And yet on that day, there were some 300 of us crowded on board. So you can imagine it was pretty tight quarters. So we'll, I want to talk more about that journey. But first, let's talk a little bit about your experience. You were less than one on that journey. Your family moves to the U.S., eventually gets to the U.S., they settle in Corvallis, Oregon, of all places, and that's where you grow up. So what was it like growing up in Corvallis, Oregon in the 70s and the <laughs> 80s? What was that like for you? I, I grew up 
believing myself and still do believe myself to be an American kid. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything other than being an American kid. And I grew up in our cul-de-sac in Corvallis, riding my banana seat bike, going with my older siblings to collect soda cans that we would sell and then turn around and head over to the 7-Eleven to buy Jolly Ranchers candies. We ate pepperoni pizza. It was a very idyllic childhood, but I always knew that there was something unspoken in my family, that there was a difference in how I looked versus how my friends looked. In other words, they were white and I wasn't. And early on growing up, I, I understood that, um, that I was in fact different because of the color of my skin. And I remember at one point, I might have been in, you know, second, third grade, somewhere in that time frame, asked my parents about where our family's from. Because I thought, I'm surrounded by all these white kids, like, you know, we're, we're different. And they didn't say, they didn't acknowledge my question. They, they hardly spoke about anything related to Cambodia. And at the time, I took it to mean, well, they're private or they were annoyed with their very nosy daughter. I mm -hmm. like the more charitable word curious, which I think helped me become a pretty good reporter. Um, you know, nosy, curious, they're synonyms. It's a matter of your perspective. And I thought that they didn't answer me because I had so many questions when I was a kid and I still do as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, looking back, it's because of PTSD and the trauma that they experienced from that moment we were severed from our homeland. But as a kid, you don't know any better. And those are the things that I began to learn as I entered my career as a journalist and eventually as I wrote this book. So tell me about how you became a journalist. What, how'd you get there? Started right here on the University of Oregon campus. Uh, I, I knew before I arrived on this campus that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and taking classes at Allen Hall, majoring in journalism and also English, really kind of solidified this notion that I would be a storyteller. I didn't know what shape or form that was going to take, whether indeed I would be a journalist or whether I would end up writing books and being a storyteller that way. It turns out I was able to do both. Uh, but there was one class in particular when I was a student at the School of Journalism Communications. You always remember the, the great teachers um, and the great classes. And for me, that was reporting to, taught by Bob Welch, who was then a reporter at the Eugene Register Guard here. And Bob, the way that he taught that class, really kind of pushed all of us students to learn how to write quickly in real time. And he, created, he would create these scenarios, you know, gather all of us and take us all outside by the side of the road and pretend that there was a car accident mm -hmm. and we had to do a press interview with him being the pretend police chief and whatnot. And, and so we really cut our teeth in that class because he made it seem so real. One afternoon he approached me and he said, put, there's a job at the register guard. It's a night shift position. You'd be covering breaking news, anything that comes across the scanner. You should apply. And I, and I laughed because of the timing of it, not because it was funny, but there was irony in the timing, which was that I had just applied at the Daily Emerald mm. and was rejected from, uh -huh. <laughs> from a reporting job there. And I thought, why is the local newspaper, our city's newspaper, going to hire me if I can't get a job at our campus newspaper? But nevertheless, I did apply. I got the job. Mm. And that opened so many doors in journalism for me, having that one opportunity. Oh, that's a great story. Um, 
So as a journalist, you've lived and worked in more than a dozen countries, right. and you've been in war zones, you've, you've done a lot of amazing reporting. But you've, you've written this memoir about your mother and yourself. Mm -hmm. So what inspired you to make that shift? Why did you decide to write a memoir? <laughs> I will be perfectly honest, I kind of went kicking and screaming into this process. Mm. I didn't want to write this particular book. I wanted to write a book. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write a book that looked more specifically at my parents and this idea of survivor's guilt mm -hmm. and the survivor's guilt that they carried with them when we left Cambodia and when they knew and learned after the war in Cambodia and the genocide ended that so many of their relatives had perished under the genocide. And that survivor's guilt really manifested in so many different ways within our family and within, within my home. And so I grew up with this, with this really profound sense of, then I feel guilty too for being alive when I don't know these relatives who died, but I know that they were related to me. And, and why did my family live? And so I went through my own iterations of what survivor's guilt was. And so I was really interested in that idea and wanted to explore it in a book form. But that's actually not what happened in how I got to this book. Mm -hmm. I got to this book in a bit of a circuitous route where at the time I was thinking about writing something about my parents uh, and a, a book that was going to focus on, on them and their relationship and, and our lives in America. I was working as a journalism trainer internationally. I worked for an organization called Internews and we work in a lot of post-conflict and conflict countries, so, so in other words, countries that are in the midst of war or have, are emerging from war to create independent media and an ecosystem where citizens have an opportunity for freedom of expression to the extent that that's possible in some of these countries. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's hard in, in some countries where the regimes are very authoritarian, but nevertheless, this was the work that, that I had um, been doing for Internews. And in between my life living abroad I would often come back to the U.S. to visit family whenever I had time off. And I have two sisters in Seattle, and I came to visit them. And as fate would have it, I met the woman who would become my wife. And when I met her, I didn't know then how drastically my world was going to shift. But what it meant was after about a year and a half of a long-distance relationship, we made the decision that I would move to Seattle. And not knowing what to do, she said to me, well, you've talked about wanting to write this book. Why don't you do that? And it never occurred to me that I could, or actually would, I just wanted to. And so I ended up taking classes, writing classes, to learn how to do creative writing because my brain had been attuned to the rigors of journalism and fact-checking and truth-telling and accuracy and objectivity. But in creative writing, the rigor is different. The rigor is vulnerability. And so I really had to, it was, it was, it was a big shift and transition in my mind to think through that. But what happened was I ended up writing a, an assignment in a personal essay class that I took that really had an impact on my peers when I workshopped the piece, mm -hmm. had an impact on my wife, and then I showed it to my sister. And both my wife and my sister said, have you thought about getting this published? And I said, no, this was just for class. But they wouldn't give up nagging me. So I decided, let me just submit this to the place that will outright reject it, and then I can go on. <laughs> so I sent it to the New York Times, and I forgot about it. But the New York Times didn't forget about me or that piece. And four months down the line, I got a phone call 
I thought it was having to do with a subscription, and I was ready to say, we already subscribe, like, and click, that's, you know. It wasn't, it was the editor of Dan Jones, who's the editor of the Modern Love column of the New York Times. That, that piece that I wrote for class indeed got published, which led to literary agents calling, which led to a book deal, and now we have this okay, book, so, My and Me. <laughs> so you said, you know, you, you had to get trained to be a creative writer, so this book begins uh, with a saying, um, it's a, and we would say Khmer, but the pr pronunciation, as I understand it, is Khmer. Khmer, yeah. that's right. So the Khmer saying about the crocodile and the tiger. That's right. So tell us that saying. Yeah, it's something that my mom told me over the course of several years of interviewing her for this, for this book. Um, well, actually, not for this book, for, but for a book I was going to write. I thought I was writing about them. And the saying is which indeed is the cover, the beautiful cover of this book is a crocodile and a tiger on it. And the saying is, go in the water, there's the crocodile. Come up on land, there's the tiger. And of course, in English, we would say, we're just stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so the book kicks off with a moment of sheer rebellion on the part of my mother having to do with her own marriage and how being from Cambodia, where it's traditional for Cambodian girls to be in arranged marriage, she couldn't escape that fate. But, in, but she didn't want to get married in an arranged marriage, and so she fled. She ran away. And the interesting thing is, 40 years later in America, her daughter would come to her own moment, where I had to choose between marrying a woman and being true to myself, or maintaining fidelity to my mother and my Cambodian culture and the world that my family had fled. And I had to make a decision that was equally painful as my mother's decision, whether to get married or whether to stay where she had run away to is to the eastern edge of Cambodia in 1968. The Vietnam War was raging. Americans were dropping B-52 bombs all along the border. And she went there because she was going to hide out with her brother, who was a math teacher. And she thought, I'll go there. He'll let me stay. Things will blow over with Dad. I won't have to get married. Well, that's not what happened. She was confronted with war and bombs in 1968. And her choice was, I could stay here and probably potentially die hiding out because I don't want to get married, or I could go back to my village and get married. Those, those twin weddings are what bookend this memoir. And the context for my marriage was different. We were no longer in Cambodia. Gay marriage was legal. I fell in love, and the person happened to be a woman. And so I had the ability and the right to marry who I wanted. Had I been in Cambodia, there's no way I would have gotten away with this at all. I would have faced the same fate as my mother. I, I would have been in an arranged marriage to a man. But the context was different. And so and I think in that way, the war was the thing that led us to have a rupture with our homeland and our country. War was also open door for me because by being in America, I had the freedom to choose who I wanted to marry and, 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 and who I am, really. So would you read a passage from the book? Absolutely, I would love to do that. I'll read a section here that 
I interviewed my mother extensively, and there are various passages of this book where it's her words verbatim, and I'm going to start there with a story that she tells me about our family leaving Cambodia. The captain was walking around checking on his passengers. He wore a uniform that was so white it was gleaming. I don't know how he kept his uniform so clean. We'd been on a boat for several days already. When he saw me and he saw my baby wasn't moving, he told me, Miss, do you see? We are so crowded here. If your baby dies, you have to throw your baby in the water or else the corpse will spread disease to everyone else. When he said this, my spirit left my body. I explained to the captain that you were just sick. I begged him, let me keep my baby, we're Buddhist. Please let me bury her when we reach land. I looked him right in the eye. You don't do that in Cambodia, it's disrespectful. I was desperate, I didn't know what to do. The captain agreed to let me keep you. I was so sad, so I passed you to my stepmother. I went below deck to the storage room where they kept all the bags of rice. I collapsed against them and cried. That was so difficult. I don't want to remember anymore, put. How many times were you close to dying? Out of all my kids, you were the weakest. You were the smallest of all. You were the hardest to take care of. Over the years, people have asked me, do you have any memories of that time? No memories, I will say, only feelings, things my body knows, like hunger, like leaving. My first feeling was flight. Running away became my enduring lesson in surviving. And over the years, as my mother retold this story, she smoothed out the corners, but kept the core the same. Every now and then, she would abide my curiosity for more details. Ma, did you think I was dead? I had hope, just a little. You were still alive, she said. According to my mother, I'd survived on drips of water she drew to my lips. And on a stubborn, unsinkable hope, the kind that only mothers have, that she whispered into my ear. In another telling of the story years later, Matt said that I was heavy. What do you mean I was heavy? I asked, feeling a little bit sad and more than a little guilty. I didn't want to think that I had burned her. How could a malnourished one-year-old baby be heavy? You were not light, she said. My arms ache so much from holding you. So she passed me to my Aunt Beck, my cousin Piseth's mom, who passed me over to my grandma Tun, my mother's stepmother, who eventually passed me back to Ma. In this way, the mothers took turns, cycling sorrow between them. Now that I am older and have seen so many photographs of refugee mothers from Syria, Somalia, Nigeria, gripping their babies like buoys on overcarded boats in the Mediterranean Sea, I think I know what my mother meant. Heavy, as in my daughter might not make it on this journey I decided for her. Heavy, as in how did I fail? Heavy is the feel of death. How many mothers have had to wonder where to bury their babies? Thank you for reading. Amazing passage. Uh, I should say the book is filled with amazing passages like that. Thank you. Um, you, you uh, at the end of that passage, you talk about your experience as a reporter encountering refugees. And on the one hand, this book is a refugee narrative. 
uh, and it's a searching and fascinating uh, refugee narrative. But it is also, as you have already begun to say, a queer narrative. Talk about how you managed that paradox in the book, but also how you've managed that paradox in your life. I've had a lot of thinking to do on that very question. So much of what this book wants to speak to is the in-betweenness that people like me, where people like me, that gray area, where I grew up believing I was American and I am American. I remain proud to be American. But it wasn't until the very first time that I went to Cambodia and I realized there's this whole other side of me there. And it really, it, it, it really caused a lot of uh, emotional crisis for me in terms of my identity and who I was because you grow up thinking you're one thing and then you realize you're, oh, actually, you're this other thing too. It took me a long time to get there, but I realized that we can be more than one thing at once. We can be two things. We can be three and four and five things as well. Whitman says we contain multitudes. And it took me a long time to embrace that idea because I feel like at the time our world forced us to choose, wanted us to put it in a box. That manifested via census forms I would have to fill out, scholarships forms, you know, are you male, are you female, are you Asian, are you Caucasian? I mean, all of the different options. And I think if anything, what I learned from writing this book is that I don't want to live in a box anymore. I don't want to be that person. What was hard about, I think more difficult about the queer narrative aspect of this is that I had to reckon with myself before I could write that on the page and wrestle with that on the page. I myself had internalized my own shame, probably from my mother's shame of being gay. But in order to actually write this memoir that I wrote that really dives deep into what being gay meant to me and how hard it was to come out to my mother, coming from a culture that is conservative, and what ultimately would that mean to speak those words in my own family, I'm gay. There were, there were a lot of tears and a lot of years of reckoning with that first. But ultimately, I think one of the powers of this book, and to me what was resonant as I was writing it, was that increasingly more of us are in the situation where we are many things. I am gay, I am Asian American, I am Cambodian American specifically. Um, I am all these things. And it's, it's learning to, to, um, to be calm in that space of, of gray and that in-betweenness. So I'm interested in this idea of the in-betweenness um, as a formal matter. Mm -hmm. So you've, the passage you read, the first part of that passage is, is your mother's voice. It's her story. And the second passage is your voice. And there are other kind of interesting formal choices that you've made. And one of them, I'm an English prof, so this is in, of interest to me. So one of the places that you reported from is Afghanistan during the war. And that chapter is all written in the second person. Mm -hmm. So why? Why is that chapter written in the second person? <laughs> yeah. That has to do with the book writing process itself. And this book was written in four years and went through 10 drafts. And the very last draft, my editor was reading it, but simultaneously my agent in New York was reading it. They didn't each know that the other was reading the exact same draft. Mm -hmm. And within the same week, I got feedback regarding that chapter on Afghanistan for both of them. Both of them said pretty much the same thing. This chapter doesn't really seem to fit. It's too long. Consider 
cutting it out completely or cutting it. And it was a moment of reckoning for me with this book because we were almost at deadline. This was gonna be the last draft that I could work on. And I was so angry because I thought, they don't understand. They don't understand. But when I reread that chapter where it was before what it became in this book, I thought they're right. Like this chapter doesn't really get to the heart of why I chose to go to Afghanistan. And I had to backtrack. And I had to do a lot of deep self-reflection on this. And I'll never forget that moment working in the shed in our backyard, which became my writing studio, that before I went to Afghanistan, I'd had this fight with my mother over me being gay. And it was when she'd visited Cambodia and it deeply unsettled me because it was one of those moments where I thought, God, do I, do I really need to disappoint my mother? Like, can I just find a man to marry? That was where I was at. And I was so dis just disoriented within myself and, um, and, and just really confused. When an opportunity to go to a war zone came up, I snapped it up because I didn't care. I thought, my mom is so ashamed of me for being gay. I'm ashamed of me for being gay. What do I have to lose? If I end up dying in Afghanistan, then I die in Afghanistan. And the only way that I could write that story when I finally realized a big part of why I went there was because of my own shame of being gay. And I went there to hide from myself, essentially. The only way I could write that story was in the second person. And I'll never forget, I, I wrote it. I finished at about 3 a.m. and sent it to my editor. I mean, time was of the essence. The deadline for the book was coming up. My editor rarely gives compliments or <laughs> any kind of kudos to her writers. And she wrote it back. She didn't change a single word. And she wrote, wow, beautiful. And it shows up in the book exactly as, it, as I wrote it. In that second person, we decided together to keep it that way because it needed that distance mm -hmm. in the book as well to say, pay attention to this chapter, there's something here mm -hmm. that is, puts sh shame manifested on the page in that way. Why not just keep it, you know, stylistically, why not just keep it? Fascinating. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great writer's story. Yeah. So you're, you're a teacher of writing right. now. <laughs> so um, how do you do that? What do you, what, tell us, give us a sense of how you approach the problem of teaching memoir writing. It is. I would not call it a problem. I would call it a challenge uh -huh. more than a problem. Um, it's tough because transitioning from a journalist to then now being a memoirist is probably one of the hardest, most jarring transitions I think anybody could make because the, the disciplines are so different from each other. But I felt when I finished this book that I had some experiences that were worth sharing. And I also realized that in my heart, my passion rests with journalism, but I come from such a rich tradition in my family of teachers. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was a teacher, my uncle was a teacher, my aunts have been teachers. And under the Khmer Rouge regime, anybody who was educated be they doctors, teachers, lawyers, journalists, were summarily executed because of the fact of knowledge. And I thought if there's anything that I could do to honor my relatives who died for essentially being who they are, being teachers and wanting to educate, wanting to spread knowledge, that I would be a teacher. And thus I found my way to this 
world of teaching memoir, not just writing it, but making the next step and teaching it. And I actually also, when I came to the University of Oregon campus and I majored in English, my mother really scratched her head because she thought, what, how, what are you possibly going to do with this major? And I had to do a lot of convincing that no, I, I can be a teacher. You know, she knows that a lot of her relatives were teachers, and so it took a while, but I finally got there. Um, so, have you any writers that inspire you? Not more writers or I, other kinds of writers? I do. I would say one of my biggest inspirations is Viet Thanh Nguyen, who has written both memoir, but mostly known for his novels. And one of the reasons why Viet Thanh Nguyen inspires me so much is that not only does he write these gorgeous books, The Sympathizer, one of his novels, won the Pulitzer, but he's not afraid to speak his mind when he goes out in public to talk about why he writes about the topics he writes about. He's not afraid to be political. He's not afraid to offend. And to me, there's really power in that, in claiming your own agency and standing by every word you wrote. And I sort of, I feel like I channel Vitan Nguyen on, on book tour and on speaking tour, that I, I too want to claim my own sense of agency and stand by my book and stand by my words, and talk about immigration, talk about L the LGBTQ community and coming out and all of these things that could be uh, seen as flashpoints, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I've already written about it. And I think that we have to have these discussions out in the open. They can't just exist within the pages of a book. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. You, you, one of the epigraphs is from him, is that right? Am I right yes, about that? Yeah. that's right. right <laughs> um, so this is our last question. We're yeah. just about out of time. Um, what are you working on now? Can you tell us? <laughs> right now I'm working on having a little fun, mm -hmm. relaxing, mm -hmm. traveling around to, to school campuses, especially I'm so happy to be here at my alma mater. Uh, I've got another book idea in mind um, that I'm, I'm, I'm writing toward. I'm not sure what it's, what it's going to become or, or if it's go actually going to become a book. And um, I actually just last week met with my agent on some other ideas that, that I may want to do. So things are percolating right now, but I just decided, let me give myself a chance to take a break and transition and, and, and figure out what's next here. Okay, well, that's a great decision. <laughs> yeah. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you. And again, it's like a, a spectacular book. I, I would recommend it very strongly. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that, Paul. Uh, I've been speaking with uh, writer Putsada Riang, author of the memoir Ma and Me. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>